Uh, one of the things that I've always been very clear about is that um, it's Vogue that has the power rather than the individual who is sort of the caretaker of, of that brand. Um, so um, my think my role is to uh, ensure that we don't erode that power by trying to remain as um, adherent, I guess, to the kind of tenets of Vogue as I see them, which is, which is really, in fact, um, a mixture of things because I was not brought up within a... I didn't work within fashion um, for a long time, actually until I came to Vogue. And, um, but I was always brought up with Vogue uh, oh. around me. And I always thought Vogue as a kind of cultural magazine more than a fashion magazine. Um, as a teenager and as a young woman. And so I think one of the things that I've really tried to do with it is to, to make sure that it's a magazine, albeit one where now a huge amount of the magazine is about fashion, that it is a, a, a kind of faithful uh, chronicler of the culture of our time, obviously within a certain remit, which is... Um, the arts, fashion, style, lifestyle, and beauty. And um, I think that uh, you can't carry on being an authority uh, or being believed just by default, just because you're called Vogue. You do have to ensure that, uh, that you keep on you know, really uh, doing your research, um, investing in the product, Innovative. investing in uh, the material. Um, and that's been a great priority to, to make sure that Vogue under my um, guidance uh, produces the same calibre, really, of material that it has for the previous 75 years of its life. We will, we will talk about your Vogue, your editorship. But as it is 100th year of Vogue, mm. of the British Vogue, and you organised a, a number of events and the most important being certainly a centenary issue, and also your big exhibition at the National Portrait Gallery. So I would like that we talk a bit about history, but not like a chronicle, because everybody can learn about that, reading the books and the catalog of your exhibition. Somehow your personal view, what, what period maybe you prefer, what, what uh, going through the archive, preparing for the, that exhibition? Mm. Well, uh, Vogue launched, as many of you probably know, in 1916, and that's the middle of the First World War. So that in itself is kind of fascinating because when you know, this country was going through one of the most enormous kind of social upheavals of, of being at war and you know, huge losses of life at that time as well, um, to launch a kind of a fashion and society magazine is an extraordinary thing to do, but it, um, it was immediately a success. So I, I love looking at those very early issues. And what's fascinating is that it does talk about the fashions and it, and it launched very much because, um, because actually women did want to know about the Paris fashions and you know, how to make the most of themselves in, you know, in, a, in a difficult time and obviously escapist. But some of the most fascinating things of those very early Vogues are 
are actually stories about you know how um, how travel expanded, um, how the motor car grew up. Um, there's a wonderful piece that somebody pointed out to me in the exhibition, which was about the use of the gramophone to play music, which um, this man pointed out could actually have been written about the iPod and people saying that in a way that was kind of devalued the calibre of the music and exactly the same piece had been written in 1917 about the introduction of the gramophone. So um, I found that those very early ones very interesting. And then, well, it's hard. I, I don't have a favourite period. I have favourite bits um, out of them. I mean, it was there was a very intellectual editor called Dorothy Todd. Yeah, who I had, wanted to ask you know, about wonderful her. writers like Aldous Huxley, for instance, and Virginia for Woolf. Her, and Virginia Woolf. Yeah, she was not a very successful editor of the magazine and got fired in the end. <laughs> um, but um, it's very nice to know that we had that moment when we had that kind of very literary bent. And I suppose in, in, the, um, in the exhibition, my favorite room actually was the 1940s room, which had the Lee Millers and the Clifford Coffins and the Cecil Beaton. And again, actually, oddly, obviously a wartime period, but also the post-war when there was this kind of feeling of revival as well that, that you saw in some of the fashion pictures that came out of that time. And probably personally, um, the 1970s Vogues because the early 70s would have been when I was about 14, 15 and I think that the images that you see at that stage in your life and uh, the models, the music, the photographers are, are things that resonate with you actually throughout your life. So it's very much that kind of 70s, early 70s Vogues that I probably really remember. Uh, just to dwell a bit more on history and then we'll move on. Uh, you already mentioned Dorothy Todd, but also you said that you've seen Vogue as a cultural magazine. And of course she was not successful, but how do you balance actually having culture and fashion obviously very, very successfully? Well, fashion is totally of the culture, isn't it? I mean, that's what's so interesting about it to me that, you know, fashion, I think, continually reflects the general culture we live in. Um, you know, looking across the world, you see how uh, the culture of different societies is reflected in the way people dress and the importance that people put on the way they present themselves. And then, you, you know, if you look at pure design, fashion design, I think having been able to look back over the, over the hundred years, one's seen how, how very clearly it, it actually reflects what's going on sort of economically, certainly, at that time, and also quite often mirrors what's going on um, within the world of the arts. Um, well, historically, Vogue had that ideal reader, upper-class woman, of, of uh, well-off, and um, Condé Nast, from the very beginning, he positioned Vogue in that direction. Yeah. And there's that famous publication of his, is it 1920, class publications, where he really positions Vogue regarding the readership, but also regarding advertising. And, uh, well, not going back to history, but who would be your ideal reader? Is it possible to have ideal reader today at all? 
And she, oh, well, it just, is. Just going back to what okay, you said, okay. one of the interesting things I learned doing the centenary issue was I didn't know a great deal about, I knew about Condé Nast um, as a man, but I didn't know about his kind of philosophy. And he was the first person who decided that, who kind of looked at the idea of niche advertising and realized that there was this luxury market that you could charge high prices for a small group of people who were interested in luxury. And before that, that had never been actually a, a, a publishing tenet. And, and he did very, very well out of it until his uh, business collapsed in the great crash, uh, Wall Street crash in the States. Um, but uh, what, was the, what was the question you were asking uh, me? Well, I, I would like that you maybe continue a bit about Condenas because really he positioned work like this. Mm. And like two weeks ago, I was actually conducting some research in Condé Nast archive in New York. And I was impressed, as you said, I reading his correspondence, I was mostly interested in his uh, relationship with Lucien Vogel, French, French uh, editor and journalist. And such precision in, he knew everything about each journal and then in the, those confidential correspondence, he would comment on each page and not only in Vogue, in, in every other magazine, every color picture. And it was unbelievable how engaged he was. So it, really, it was total drive, but also total understanding. He, he just didn't leave anything to chance. Mm. Well, I think we've been very lucky that um, the Newhouse family, who, who bought um, Condé Nast from Condé Nast, um, because most people don't even know that Condé Nast was a man, because it's quite a strange <laughs> Mr. name, Condé, for a <laughs> Midwestern guy. Um, but they, they are very much and have always been of, of that persuasion themselves. I mean, the detail that um, Cy Newhouse, uh, who used to run it, and my boss, Jonathan, know about each magazine is extraordinary. And, um, you know, don't think that they won't notice if there's a spelling mistake in the <laughs> captions. Um, it's, uh, I think, been a part of the reason why, in fact, the business has flourished, is a real passion for and understanding the business of magazines and this kind of, of magazine. You, you asked me about, um, I remembered, about my, who I thought the reader was. Yeah. Um, and I don't really have a, a reader in mind. I think anybody who reads Vogue, uh, certainly I know that they can be any age. I mean, there are girls who start reading Vogue at 13 or 12 even. And um, there are women I know who read it well into their 80s. Um, I think it's, you ha it's almost like you are the kind of person that is interested in reading Vogue, and that becomes, that's the point. It's, it, we're not like a magazine that is very much to do with a, a, stage, a stage of your life. I mean, if you do the maths, it comes out that something like you're 34 or something. But that isn't actually that everybody, that I have a 34-year-old. Was it, was it always like that during your editorship, or maybe you became more relaxed about your reader? Or? No, I, 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 it, it hasn't changed. Um, I guess that's because I started reading it very young myself. And, um, and I mean, I, I know for a fact, that, and always have known, that a lot of 
older women, and indeed men, because, because we're also quite engaged with the trade and the business, so it's not actually all women who read the magazine. In fact, it's one of the kind of defining characteristics of it is that we don't think of ourselves as a woman's magazine, although clearly a lot of the editorial is more relevant to a woman than a man. Um, it is very interesting because I somehow would think that maybe it's more related to today, having that dispersed somehow content and then also then dispersed readership. I remember, I think, mid-90s, so like 20 years ago, I interviewed, no, I didn't interview actually. I socially met deputy editor of Italian Vogue, so not Franca Sozzani, a deputy editor. And it was at the like, post-fashion party, and I asked her, because I was doing some research, so I used the opportunity and asked her, who is your ideal reader? And she said, well, she's in her early 40s, she wears black trousers, and white, uh, white pressed shirt. Is that and that what she, has, she was wearing? Exactly, <laughs> and she has a big diamond on her ring, on her, on her, on her, you know, finger. Right. And exactly, that's what she was wearing. It was very Milan. <laughs> but obviously, but that leads me to another question, which is very much somehow, I think, related to the content. And anyway, everything you do about work. And you said it now, but also you said it to other interviews, that you don't come from fashion. And probably that might have been an advantage, because you see it as a product which is related to culture, you are not obsessed, oh, of course fashion is a very important part, but what I see in Vogue, and you know, I read it regularly, like probably many people here, is somehow that you somehow allow for different aesthetics, even fashion editorials are diversified, there's not like one stamp, I don't want to mention other Vogue's, <laughs> so there's not one sort of style, or you know, changes within one style. Absolutely. It is very diversified, but maybe just because you didn't come from, from fashion. Yeah, I, I mean, mean would, you, would you agree or what I would you say? I think almost definitely. Um, I think uh, I have deliberately um, commissioned a, a, a vast range of uh, fashion photography uh, because I think that's, uh, in a funny way, that's kind of what British culture is about is the idea that you have this wide range and you can be different ways and you can look different ways and that there is no one definition of our style. But I think it's also probably that, you know, I've never been styled a fashion shoot in my life. And um, <laughs> if you're a fashion editor and you commission fashion photography, I think you're far more interested in something that reflects your own styling and your own taste. But given that that's something that I never, never did, I don't come at it from that way. I'm sort of uh, at one remove, really. So I can have a story by Tim Walker that will be a complete kind of fantasy, possibly a bit gothic and macabre or not, that will bring in landscape and characters into fashion. And then I can have Mario doing something very glossy and high voltage and then someone like Colin Dodgson now doing something much more kind of modern and pared down so and, and I love that the mix is to me is 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 very precious to me but you're quite right other Vogue's have a totally different view that they've got a very cohesive view of the kind of woman that they 
feature in their magazine and that aesthetic, and, and that works for them. Uh, well, continuing from there, what I also like that you do fight for fashion. For example, you know, the people who are here, and if we are researching fashion, well, some students will do it or will do other, other jobs in fashion. But if you're a researcher, you're research, you know, somehow you, that research might not be so appreciated just because it's like within the fashion studies, within cultural studies. So I think it's so important that you somehow appreciate fashion and that you try to present as much as you can, obviously, because you have to present models and new fashions on, on, on the, the latest models. But you do have very often women who are professional women, either politicians, scientists, and so on. So I think, although, of course, then again, you might get the critique, well, of course, she might be a scientist, but she's tall and she's got good body shape. So it's not easy, even if you try that. But I, I like that approach. Well, I mean, I, I do, I am really interested in fashion. I wouldn't want um, to mislead people and think that I don't think that, you know, Vogue has a huge remit to be very, very engaged in fashion. But my own particular interest is, is sort of seeing how fashion relates to other things outside purely fashion. Um, and yes, you're right, you know, I, I, it's become a bit of a kind of mission, I guess, to, to try and show fashion on people who don't work within the industry because I, I do think it's very, very damaging to think that only women who work in a kind of celebrity culture can be fashionable and can be interested in how they look and makeup and great clothes and everything when we want women to to be able to be part of every area of culture but and and professions but you know why why should it be that you're a forensic scientist why should you not be interested in what your nails look like or, you know, not be interested in what Alexander McQueen's done or something? But I think our culture has been quite slow in embracing the idea that, that that's possible. But hey, we've got a prime minister now and she's interested in So when she, so will be, good. when she will be in the, on the cover, of course, she will not tell us, but let's hope. I don't think right at the moment our cover <laughs> is her priority. <laughs> okay. Uh, you said, not really modestly, but somehow, like, I'm continuing that tradition and so on. Actually, you revolutionized, because probably you had to, a lot. Like, um, when uh, going online, establishing uh, Vogue Fashion Festival. So how all those things happen? Um, well, I think when you're doing, I'm sure everyone knows, that when you're doing something, you don't kind of quite see it that way. You just do the thing that's in front of you. So I never thought about revolutionizing anything, but, you know, done a job for 24 years, the world around you's changed. And in fact, it's quite interesting. I mean, the magazine itself, I change quite a lot to reflect what's happening, but also to reflect what else is happening in publishing. So there have been periods of time, for instance, when I focused the magazine more narrowly on fashion than other times. And sometimes I felt that uh, that actually wasn't the most beneficial to us and we should be broadening it out. So, I mean, generally, I've thought that 
it was important to have cheaper clothes in the magazine to make the magazine more about a kind of every woman in a way rather than just one very narrow type of person but whilst also kind of keeping it at this kind of this thing that is vogue that's very hard to to pin down um, obviously uh, the whole digital revolution has grown up during the time I've been at Vogue and but actually the website which I think now started really quite a long time ago I forget it was something like 15 or 16 years ago I had very very little to do with very very little um, until probably about five or six years ago it was acted pretty independently to me and something like the the festival um, has really come out of a feeling that that it's important to do. We've got this fantastic brand that is Vogue, and people have never been. I think there are more people who know what Vogue is, who are interested in the idea of Vogue, but who don't necessarily buy the magazine. And so I was looking at ways of um, how to engage some of those people and maybe um, sort of take Vogue out of just the magazine. And that's probably something that will continue because we all know that you know, print, print sales in every, every way are declining. I mean, we're very, very, very lucky. Ours are declining much less quickly than most people's. But you know, it would be a lie to say that they're, they're not declining. So you, you know, one's looking at what are you going to do with Vogue when it's such a robust notion um, well, you mentioned digital, and uh, how do you see the relationship between uh, blogs and other platforms, fashion-related, fashion and Vogue? Do you see it as mutual influence, or do you see it as competition? Um, I'm just I talking generally now. Um, just presenting, presenting fashion or related content, which can be culture as well, or fashion, or the same stars and same people. How do you, do you feel that you compete with, with, the, with the blogs, for example, or do you, you know, or do maybe... Do you mean, do, do I feel that other websites compete with Vogue? Yes, yes. Um, oh yeah, God. yeah, I'm sure they compete Mutually. with Mutually, yeah. But no, do I mean, you see that maybe then even First, of course, you have your own website now, but, I mean, for some time, but also, I mean, just looking back, I see change, not only in Vogue, but also in other printed media. There is some change, that immediacy which characterized the, the digital fashion, I mean, the digital presentation of fashion, digital platform, somehow moved also to the print but on the other hand, it seems to me that they became, some of them, more serious and somehow more ambitious. The print or the digital? Well, uh, the digital, they just, I remember at this place we actually hosted, within the same hub, we hosted Susie Bubble when she was at the very beginning and uh, our colleague Anya Zrakamora interviewed her and she insisted that she has a good business plan, that she doesn't Photoshop her images, that she only takes pictures of herself as she is at the balcony. So there was that raw, like, everyday feeling which she wanted to achieve. 
and all of them at the beginning. But today, I, I still like Susie Bubble, and, but you know, there were many more of them, and there was, recently there was that big dispute. I know your Vogue, and you, you were not included in it. Uh, uh, it was American Vogue, disputing bloggers, and also putting them all in the same bag, which I don't think it's, it's okay. No, I mean, I think that, you know, there are great people working in the digital sphere, there are great vloggers, there are great bloggers, there are uh, probably very relevant sort of style influences, there are good and bad, but that's true of print journalists and, and reporters so, as well. So I don't think there's a huge difference. I mean, I think the only thing I would say is that because of the medium, I think the caliber of writing as yet is not always, but overall probably less good than it is in, than has grown up through print. But even that's changing. Um, and there's much more long form online than there was, which is great, I think. Yeah, well, I remember after that talk with Susie Bubble, I live in central London, I came home. She already posted <laughs> that talk, actually essay about that talk here. So she'd written it that quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, admiring. Yeah. So well, yeah, somehow it seems that the printer, of course, as you say, that bar hasn't been very, was not very high at the beginning, but some of them are, are improving and well, also... I mean, in the office now, we, most of my team are right for the website as well as the print, um, the print version. Slightly more that than the other way around. My digital team don't write so much for the print magazine, but that's because they're kind of so busy just yeah, actually relaying 24-hour yeah, yeah. news <laughs> and coverage. Well, just um, staying at the digital, but from the other side, business side, what do you think about this new approach to Burberry, Ralph Lauren? <laughs> okay, maybe that's not a favorite question. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> see now, by now. Um, yeah, see now, by now. How do you see it in relation to Vogue and other prestigious magazines having, you know, that authority to present fashion after a couple of months and so, and now, see now, by now, how do you, what do you think about that? Well, I, I understand and, and share a need for questioning the, um, the conventional show timetabling. Um, it's very slow that we, a whole bunch of us, go around the world looking at fashion shows. The same people sit in the same seats in fashion shows in four different cities um, and that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly kind of modern way of, of looking at um, of looking at fashion however those moments of uh, the industry meeting I think are creatively valid and there's something about uh, a group of people who all have a vested interest, whether or not you're a buyer, a journalist, a photographer, a designer, a student, you're all interested in this thing that's happening, this stuff. And something actually comes out of all those people being together at that point, which is very valuable. Um, the idea that that show, which people invest a lot of money in, 
should actually really be there to drive customers into the store the next day sort of negates the validity of all those people and what they're doing because you don't need them. I mean, case in point, Burberry, do a show now that all of us have already seen the collection. We've all gone in and seen it in the showroom. So we go to a show to look at a collection we've already seen, um, which, you know, if everybody did that, that would be quite tedious. Um, at the moment, there are only a few brands that are doing it. And it's been quite interesting to actually see that after, I guess this started about nearly a year ago, this idea, that after a year, relatively few brands actually are changing and doing that. What seems to be happening more, and I think it's probably a good idea, is that menswear and womenswear is being shown together. I think a lot of brands are thinking that they will crunch those shows, and that seems to make sense. And they're looking at a different timetable, which I think could be good, so that instead of shows necessarily being in the sort of September, October, and February, March, they might be uh, a bit earlier, and uh, that could be helpful, or later, depends which way actually they go. <laughs> um, I think that I, I, I foresee a different timetabling within the next couple of years. I don't think that the shows will be exactly when they are, but I don't think that all designers are going to decide to show their shows that will the next day have those collections um, in the stores. They, they, they can't produce exactly. in that way. That's what I wanted to say. Only those who really have loads of funds can actually yeah. finance production yeah. in advance yeah. and even not knowing how much they will sell. Yeah, or what's going to be actually taken up by the press. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, moving on, your book, your recent book, mm. Inside Vogue, yeah. which, as also Charlotte mentioned, caused a lot of attention. Um, I've been reading it in the last couple of days. I, I'm fascinated. I think everybody who read it and who didn't, you should, you should read it. It's really, it's entertaining, but in the best way. It's really fascinating. And it seems so brave. I mean, s saying things about the people, I don't know, you know, they probably will not sue you, but will you acquire <laughs> I hope enemies? They won't sue me. If they acquire, will you acquire enemies? Did you hear anything? So anyway, can you say a bit more about the books, just to start it off, so sure. the people who didn't read it yeah. yet, that they learn about it? Well, I wanted to write a diary of the centenary year, my experience of a centenary year. Um, so I'd started it on the 1st of September, 2015, and I ended it on the night of the referendum, 23rd of June. Um, and so it took me through the arc of producing this uh, Duchess of Cambridge cover, National Portrait Gallery exhibition, the festival, big gala party we had, and the whole centenary issue. Um, but it's also a book about my life broadly at that time and sort of the life of what actually happened in the world and that was quite interesting because looking back 
I was fascinated, for instance, to see that I wrote in September 2015 that I thought that Trump was being underestimated. <laughs> um, and I was talking to the, my driver in New York, and he was a Chilean, and, um, and this is in the book, and he, he was saying, you know, that he didn't like Hillary either, um, and that Trump, he thought Trump was unelectable, and where are we now? So. <laughs> and uh, Brexit, of course, at that point had not happened. There hadn't even been a referendum announced, but there were rumbles all the way through it. So I'm, I'm proud of the diary because I think it is a, it's only a reflection of one woman's life during that period. But it is a very honest reflection of, of my life. And um, I wanted to show how it was that you would edit um, a magazine like Vogue, which is obviously very glamorous and, and interesting and um, extreme in many ways, and how you juxtapose that with, you know, what happens in everyone's daily life. You know, the washing machine breaks. In my case, the boiler's never working, so there's never any hot water in the house. The cat gets <laughs> sick. <laughs> I don't have any clothes to wear. And... Um, to me, the sort of what I like about the book most is that juxtaposition. I think this book will be read long, long, for a long, long time because it's not like a diary of any woman because it's really, although there is your everyday life, which makes it really even more honest, your just personal life. Every reader learns about it, but it's really how you see your job, how you see people you work with, how you see stars. Yeah, to see everybody. I mean, when I, I wrote it in um, every, well, not literally every, every night or morning, but probably... Exactly, when did you find time to do it? Um, During that year, special year, but probably were well, extremely kind busy. Of, if somebody said something interesting, I'd rush and scribble it down, you know, when, when I got out of the room or something. Because um, I've got no memory. That was another reason for doing it, that I knew that this year was going to, in my life, be one of the most interesting years of my life. And my memory is so poor that unless I wrote it down in five years, I would remember very little. Now, I could have done that just for myself, but I thought I wouldn't have the discipline. Um, but if I had a publishing commission, then I'd have to do it, so there wouldn't be any bottling out. Yeah, there are some hilarious details. Like, I, I have to mention one with Naomi Campbell, who sort of blackmails you. <laughs> she is late for the shoot, and then you say, no, no, and then she goes, well, it will not be perceived very well if I am not in the centenary issue. Yeah, she did. <laughs> did, she, did she read the book? What did she say? Don't I know. don't know whether she's read the book or not yet. <laughs> the list is growing of people who... <laughs> Uh, there's something that they don't like in the book. <laughs> uh, well, I think, and you say it in the book, that uh, somehow maybe, maybe you would, you would make those notes and it would be your personal diary, but I think you say it in the book that actually you were so unhappy with that film, Absolutely Fashion, which probably many of us have seen, that actually, and you didn't communicate well with the director, that somehow this is your story. Um, I don't think I say that I was unhappy with the well, documentary. Um, um, I think I write about what it was like being filmed and what people felt or were saying they felt to me in the office about it. And certainly it did enable me to know that I was going to be able to explain what I thought 
given that I didn't know what, what was going to be shown when I was writing the book. But the, the, the book ends on the day that I saw a, an early screening of the documentary. It, um, the 23rd of June, I saw the documentary in a screening room. Uh, the exhibition traveled to Manchester to be installed there from the National Portrait Gallery. And of course, it was the night of the referendum. So it was, to me, a sort of, you know, it was a perfect night to finish, um, to finish the year. And I think when I write about seeing the documentary, actually, I, I feel quite relieved that it's not, um, it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Um, well, we talked about the past. We talked about your leadership. Do you have any ideas about the future of Vogue? Or maybe the printed media in general? Um, I have every faith in the printed Vogue existing for a considerable amount of time. Um, it's a very lucrative magazine. It's a very treasured magazine. Um, as a physical object, it's something people still uh, value uh, for, the, for the very fact of the thing that it is. Um, and I see no reason for that to change. Uh, whether or not it will carry on being published, you know, if, if in 10 years' time, will it be published once a month? I don't know. Will it be the same size? I don't know. But I, I, I think certainly for the foreseeable future, the, the magazine itself is, it's like the trunk, you know, it's, it's the thing that everything else hangs off. If we didn't have that, and we just had, say, the website and the events, I think that relatively soon things might actually kind of shrivel away. It's because of this magazine that is precious, is complicated to produce, that everybody that works on it cares passionately about, and we spend a lot of money producing what we produce. It, it's that that is, you know, it's that that everything else can hang on. Yeah, 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 I agree. Um, so that would be the future of Vogue. But do you have any plans for your future? After Vogue, Charlotte mentioned introducing this talk that you already wrote two novels. So will you go in that direction? Do you um, have any other plans? I mean, as much as no, you can no. say. Well, <laughs> no, I have no plans. Um, I'm not a great one for plans. I don't think I've ever had a job that I'd planned to have. Um, everything's um, not just happened to me in a passive way, but some, there's been a moment where something come up and I had a choice whether to pursue it or not pursue it. Um, all I know is that uh, I absolutely do not feel like I don't want to do more and more. I want to, um, I mean, I think I've been very lucky. I've had a fantastic past so far, but I intend to have a fantastic future as well. Um, and actually, you know, the interesting thing is when you get to, to my age, you spend um, quite a lot of time uh, I think when you're much younger, kind of wondering what your life is going to be and, you know, if you're going to have a partner and if you're going to have children and where you're going to live. And then you kind of find yourself having a lot of those things. And then you're trying to look after 
that family and everything. And actually, when you get to my stage, there's a wonderful feeling that, you know, my, my, my son's now 21, and I adore him, and he still lives with me, but I don't have to look after him on a daily <laughs> basis, and I, I've got a home and everything. So, in fact, I've got sort of more time and freedom and everything to, to do even more, in fact. So that's what I'm planning to do. Perfect. Um, do you, and it's probably not easy for you to answer, but do you see something or whatever which would be your legacy? Because, for example, as we already mentioned, there is Dorothy Stoddworth work, there might be Liz Tilbury's work, we study work, maybe some of our students will study your work, mm. because, for example, there was already a special issue, double issue of fashion theory, actually edited uh, by two of our colleagues, Amy Delahaye and Betty Konekin, who was there at the time, about different editions of work. So people will study, researchers in the yeah. future will study your work as well. Do you have any idea no, what would be your so. legacy? I, I, I think it's impossible to see uh, your own work yeah. um, in and have any clear idea of how it will be regarded retrospectively. I mean, when you're up like that, you can't see the bigger picture. Um, I was interested at the um, National Portrait Gallery exhibition when I went first to see it, and it was one of the, the most exciting moments of my life, actually, was walking into the National Portrait Gallery when it was just hung, and I was so excited by how amazing it looked. But I was worried that the images that had come through my period of time might not live up to, you know, <laughs> the great kind of pictures of the 60s or the Beatons of the 40s or the earlier ones. But actually, I thought that the, the rooms that were the, you know, 1992 onward, a lot of the portraits and the fashion, uh, there was obviously much more color um, but they were very, very strong, very powerful, a lot of the images. And I did think that, in fact, um, they, you know, they, they could will. hold their own. <laughs> yeah, so I, I was pleased by that because I wasn't sure that I would feel that way. Um, well, we'll open, um, sort of uh, let some people ask you questions. But before uh, that, I would, I would like to ask you, the last question, which actually will be related to many people sitting here. Many of the people in, in this space are our students who study journal fashion journalism or who study styling or who study fashion photography. So have you got any advice, any tips, how they can proceed in their careers? Well, I think it would be so nice, wouldn't it, if you had a kind of like, this is how to succeed, 10 points, and you just do that and it all works. Um, but that it obviously isn't, isn't how it works. I think that um, more and more I feel kind of a curiosity and um, a willingness to learn and to notice what's going on around you is incredibly important and particularly you know if you go into any places to do internships or work experience everything you know try try and just kind of soak up as much that's going on around there as you possibly can because it's it's all relevant um 
I think the industry I work in is a very people-based industry, you know, whether or not that's styling, whether it's photography, whether it's journalism. So obviously meeting people and talking to them and relating to people is, is very important. And being part of a team, I think, is very important. I think quite often people think that you've got to actually really stand out from the crowd and you've got to be the best person no matter what it takes. But actually in an office, for instance, it's the people who've come in and done work experience that have really worked collaboratively and been very, very eager to, to work with others and for others that in the end have been the ones that we've given the job to rather than possibly the, the kind of star that's come in and you can kind of see that they're, they're good, but you can't see how they're going to fit into the office, into the workplace. So I think that's, you know, that's quite important. But, um, yeah, not, I, I don't have a lot of tips. I mean, I do and I don't, but. <laughs> Thank you so much. Very pleasure. It was wonderful. And uh, Alexander kindly agreed to answer questions, like 15 minutes. So feel free to ask, okay? And by the way, I'm happy to talk about things that aren't vogue. I mean, you know, if you just want to ask a general question about your subject, that's fine. Huh? Excuse me? Oh, okay. There's a mic. Yeah, we have to wait. Okay, okay so okay. what are we going to do? Should we put a mic here? Yeah. We have to wait, I think, a bit, so that they enable the mics. Oh, the mics aren't working. Well, I can hear you anyway, and I can okay. repeat the question. So, I'm originally from Germany. I was just wondering, because people often tend to say that German vote with Christiania art, Christiania art, as I don't know, she is not as far as developed as, for example, the British vote. Like, do you have any sort of opinion on that? Like, what do you think about the German vote? So this is a so, question. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Maybe we can repeat no, the question. Well. So this is a question about German Vogue and people saying that maybe German Vogue isn't as kind of, I guess, sophisticated, would you say, or yeah. avant-garde or something as um, British Vogue. Um, actually, I think Christiane, who I really like, who's the editor there, um, does a fantastic job with German Vogue. Um, you're German, so you would know more than me, but it seems to me that it's absolutely right for for Germany, and one of the things that um, is why we have now 21 Vogues is because the recipe that works in one territory does not work for another one. And um, so, I mean, I don't think, if I published German Vogue, I don't think it would work in Britain, but if she published my Vogue, I'm sure it wouldn't work there. <laughs> May Thank I just you. add a little thing? Actually, I don't know, maybe some people know, there was a German Vogue in 1928-29, and it was exactly the same as the American Vogue. It didn't work because, and it was abolished, because actually Germany, Weimar Republic at that time, had a perfect journal called Die Dame, and which, which German upper class preferred to American journal, yeah. you know, which was, which was Vogue at that time, I mean, in Germany. So I think this is, this is a good point, really. It should, each, each publication should be appropriate to their own culture.
So my question relates to. Can can you uh, go and see? Is the mics on or not? Can we ask about? Can you, Michelle? Can you go to the control room, or Charlene? Charlene, is this one functioning? Okay. Okay. I can probably hear you, but the rest of the audience yeah. Yeah. can't. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. perfect. So, one of the recipes or the, the Vogue being an authority requires you to push the boundaries and push the frontiers. But obviously, you don't want to lose your readership in the process. So, I was just wondering how you try to balance that. Um. Well, it's always difficult knowing how to increase your audience or shift your boundaries and not alienate your, you know, the sort of the home team, whatever world you work in. Um, I think that, you know, every, what I try and do is different things with the issues so that, and for every issue that has a, a very specific idea that attracts some people, um, other people hate it. So, for instance, you know, last November I did a, oh, this November, sorry, I did, um, it was called The Real Issue, and we shot all the fashion on women who weren't models. And, you know, some people thought that was awful. What, why shoot fashion not on models? I buy Vogue because I want to see models, not because I want to see charity workers wearing fashion. Um, other people thought it was absolutely wonderful that, you know, that you, that you could that we did that. Um, I think you, I think my general feeling is that, you, that it's juggling and that you, you will always alienate some people. Um, we're just about the new cover of my issue is a model called Ashley Graham, an American model who's known as a plus size model. I, I hate that term, plus size. I think there will be tons of people who say, why do you want a model like her on your cover? Um, there are other people I can already see on Instagram who are saying, it's so great you've got a different kind of body type on the cover. Although I will say, and this is quite interesting, that we do research on our um, covers. And we had two images for that cover that we put into research. And Ashley's got a very beautiful face, but she's big. And one of the images was a, a long shot where you could see, so it was down to about mid-thigh, so you could see, you know, her bottom, her waist, uh, her bosom and everything in her face, and one's cropped to here. And the research far and away preferred the cropped shot. So despite people all saying that actually they want to have broader body images, when it came down to choosing which do you prefer, they actually preferred just the beautiful face. So that was quite a lesson for me. Rose has a mic. I think here. Thank you, Alexandra, for your great talk tonight. Um, many thanks. Uh, I watched the Absolutely Fashion documentary and I was absolutely in love with it it was amazing <laughs> i loved your interaction with richard Mesa, the director i thought it was just 
it was just incredible. I, I, I loved every bit of it, and I love the way it gave insight to what actually goes on behind the scenes at Vogue. Mm. Um, I loved everything you said. Um, I loved, you know, the way that you had this um, in the office. You had this dilemma about what cover to choose, and it was just great. And as a, I'm a luxury brand student, luxury brand management student, mm -hmm. and I'm just about to graduate in May. And like some of the things in the documentary that you said really touched me because I'm a mother and I have a little boy. Oh. And as you've grown with Vogue and you've grown with your son, I completely, everything you said I completely could identify with. And it made me want to build my career and do things in my life that would, that would you know, inspire me. And I just want to ask you, how, like, how do you recommend, like, um, what would you recommend woman to woman uh, how a woman can build a career out of her passion and love for something that she wants to do every day in life. How, what, would, like, what, what do you recommend? How do you recommend a woman makes her way in life by turning what she loves to do into her craft? Oh, heavens. Um, <laughs> um, but thank you for the nice comments. Um, Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends. You know, I, I've been very lucky. I've always worked for... I mean, I've, I, I'm a hired gun. You know, I've always worked for somebody. I've never created my own brand, my own label. Um, but that's obviously another, another route to go. I think that you... Um, I think everything's one step at a time. I think you can't... You can have goals, but you have to be realistic and not try and project too much expectation on yourself as well. Um, and, you know, if you are passionate about something and, and you want to do it, you almost certainly will be able to do it. But it, you can't expect, you shouldn't make yourself expect that things happen very quickly. And I think the other thing I would say is that I think it's quite important um, to have other things in your life, not throw all of your kind of hopes and dreams into into one one area. I mean, you know, I've always found it terribly important to to have my life with my son and to have a life with my friends and have other areas that I'm interested in because I think actually that helps you deal with some of the ups and downs of of the career that you're trying to build, so that you don't you know, it's balance, again. Not terribly helpful. <laughs> okay, we've got a question at the back. Cool. Hi, thanks so much for sharing your insights this evening. It's been great. Um, I just wanted to say, and um, we're students from the MSc in psychology, and we just wanted to understand, we're encouraged to look at things um, from the fashion in industry from a holistic perspective. Um, and being at the epicenter, as Vogue is, it's often also uh, a commentator on fashion. Mm -hmm. um, just wondering, what would you say is the kind of biggest challenge facing the fashion industry at the moment? Um, and how do you think Vogue can respond to that? Um, well, I think there are several challenges facing the fashion industry, like all industries. Um, I think the fact that um, the very fast-moving growth of digital um, is both a sort of challenge and an opportunity. And I think that uh, a lot of 
a lot of brands within the industry are, are struggling slightly to work out what, how they should be using it, what are the best mechanisms for them, um, how to interact with social media. I, I have a feeling that you can't do everything and I think people are finding that there's a lot of money and a lot of resources having to put into testing out all kinds of different things that's, that's difficult for them to, to provide. Um, I think we're living in a, in a world where you know, you've seen that China had this huge growth that's now slowed down, so there were a lot of expectations built on that which now flatlined. In this country we've got Brexit where we, don't, we simply don't know what that's going to mean. Um, so I think the sort of the general kind of political climate at the moment is is tricky because there's um, a lack of certainty in the fashion business, like all businesses, which isn't helpful for people when they're when they're trying to grow. Um, so I think those are probably the two two things I see as the most pressing problems at the moment. Where's that mic gone? Right there. Um, where's the mic? Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, when you leave Vogue, when, when your time comes to leave Vogue, mm. what type of woman or person would you like to replace you? <laughs> when I leave Vogue, what kind of person would I like to replace me? <laughs> Somebody not as good as me. <laughs> but you are not leaving. Um, you are not, not leaving. Not now, but uh, no, I think that uh, I would like somebody who values um, what's come before. I'd like somebody, I guess, who would cherish the wonderful team that work with me. Um, but you know, I think once you leave, you leave, and it will be up to somebody else really to decide what kind of person comes in. And um, I can't say I've thought about it very much. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you spoke about work experience at Vogue, so I was just wondering like, how you got get work experience at Vogue? Oh, we have a really fantastic work experience program. Um, my managing editor, who's called Frances Bentley, has turned it into a kind of second career uh, organizing our work experience, but more importantly, really putting time into, into that experience that people have and really teaching uh, the people that come in and also following up. So it's almost become the school of Francis Bentley. People come from all over the place and say, Fran, you know, do you have any work experience people that you can recommend? Because we're looking for something. So it, it, it's a really, really good program she puts together. And um, you, you apply by writing to her and uh, explaining why you would like to come to Vogue, because obviously we get millions of people. And it's a three-week program. And um, th I mean, unfortunately, we used to be able to do longer, but now uh, it's actually uh, illegal for us to keep anybody any longer doing that. But uh, we, have, we have a lot of people that come through, so you apply to the managing editor. Hi, Alexandra. Hi. <laughs> I have a more unusual question for you. I was just wondering why British Vogue doesn't have a love and sex columnist, given that American Vogue has Carly Shortino monthly. 
given that American Vogue has who? Carly Shortino with her breathless column about right. sex and love. Um, why haven't we had a sex columnist? Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> I think because I don't really feel that's why people would buy Vogue. And actually, I mean, it's... Um, when I came to Vogue, over the years I've been at Vogue, it's quite interesting, a lot of columnists that we did have, like we ha used to have book reviewers, we used to have um, food critics, film reviewers, uh, we had a gardening columnist, and all of these I stopped having because, like sex columnists, I mean, you can read really good sex columns in all the newspapers, so you don't need to buy Vogue for it. So I decided to actually, not that we'd ever had one, but um, it wasn't going to sell copies of the magazine. So that's why. Okay, thank you. I can see you, but if the mic's you, over there. If you talk loud, maybe we can hear you from here? No, there's a mic down there. Oh, there's a mic. Yeah. Hello. Hi. Uh, thank you for a wonderful talk. Thank and you. congratulations on your book. I'm a master's student in marketing. And in luxury, we see there's a shift from the product to emphasizing experiences. And how do you think print is embracing the experience economy? And do you think, do you see that as an opportunity? Um, well, I'd be interested to hear from you what you see. What kind of experiences are you seeing a shift towards? Um, well, it depends when you look at retail or at print, but obviously there's more of a dialogue with the consumer. Um, also, what you're doing with staging events is wonderful. And do you think you're going to continue doing mm. that and going further than just the magazine? Um, there's a lot of talk about the conversation now between the customer and the, uh, the consumer and, and the brand. And I think um, that, that up to a point that is important, but I'm not sure it's as important, the idea of the sort of the telling the stories. I'm not convinced that that's as important as some people say it is. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of people being at, what is definitely true, you're right, and the festival was a part of it, was that people do like to, to have an experience. I mean, that they have been spending money on, um, they'd spend money going to a concert rather than buying a CD, for instance. Um, huge growth of book festivals while the sales of books were actually declining. But all of these things now, I think, have slightly flatlined because they've been going on for some time and I, I'm not sure that there isn't a bit more of a return to actually people just liking the object, in fact, and, and not necessarily seeking the experience that much. But, you know, there's, there's room for both. Okay, thank you. Okay, Hello. I see two people. But we don't Hi. see in the back. Yeah. Do you, do you want to? Hello. Hi. Um, so my question is, um, as the longest reigning editor-in-chief at British Vogue, would you say that there's one particular part of your job that inspires you the most to stay within the fashion industry? Um, I think the thing in my job that most interests me is um, two things. 
is the people that I work with. Um, I work with incredibly creative, interesting people, both within the office and outside. And, you know, to, to know that your days are going to be spent with people that you admire and you like, but also that throw up interesting questions is, is probably one of the main things that's meant that I've stayed for such a long time. Um, I, I also think that as an editor, what's wonderful is having a voice and being able to, well, to do things actually like, like this evening, but also having a, a, a platform uh, where you can disseminate ideas and inf information, even though actually, I mean, I don't put a lot of my personal opinion into Vogue. Um, if I really care about something and want to, to do something, I, I've, I've got a wonderful vehicle to do it. So I think, you know, having that voice is, is an incredible privilege. Uh, we are running out of time. We'll just take two little questions, okay? <laughs> well, we have to decide. <laughs> um, there's a lady here in the glasses who's yes. had her hand up for a yeah. long time. Yes, so. exactly. Yes, you're waiting for a long time. Thank you very much, Alexandra and Joda. Um, with the growing Asian fashion market and the growing, basically, Asian pound, how is Vogue responding to that? Maybe Vogue is already responding. I'm not a regular reader, but I'm just interested in your reaction, Alexandra. Um, well, we don't have a lot to do with the Asian market. Um, we do everything we can to support the British designers who are going out into the Asian market, but as yet we don't feature that many designers who are homegrown talent in Asia, but we're, you know, we're watching it. And um, I would say that we're sort of aware of what's going on, but we're not completely engaged in it. Okay, the last mind, question. Shall we do lottery? There's like five people. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm studying fashion journalism. I'm a first year. Um, my question for you is, what is fashion for you right now? Um, can, you be, can you be a bit more specific about so, that? Having a look at the fashion system, what do you think is fashion right now? What do you think is your view of fashion? What do you think is art? Do you think is an expression? What do you think is fashion for you? Do you mean, do you mean in terms of the actual clothes, or do you no, mean no, no, in terms I mean in of term the of idea? How, no, 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 how, how the system, how the fashion system is expressing itself. So what is your opinion about it? Um, I think that, I mean, from my point of view, in a way, fashion is very much to do with imagery and the imagery that we create around it. And I think it's, it's been interesting to see that there's been a big kind of sea change in the last couple of years in that and I've been uh, quite intrigued to see that for instance the advertising brands advertising looks very different now to the way that um, it did a few years ago I think that possibly people are trying to 
the fashion industry has definitely got a um, sort of on a wave of sort of realism in a way that slightly mimics what happened when I first came to Vogue, which was when the grunge happened, that there's a feeling of looking for a kind of authenticity um, that's interesting. I'm very interested in the kind of, and this is something that you would know about, but the kind of whole sort of Soviet style kind of 80s. Late 80s. Yeah, well, maybe sort of mid-80s, actually, uh -huh. sort of um, Eastern European appeal that, that's going on. Um, I think it's quite an interesting time in fashion. I think there are lots of ideas there that people are exploring. And, and I have a, a gut feeling that actually in this country that um, what's happening now with Brexit and everything will throw up both in fashion and in the arts in general, some quite interesting creativity because there are a lot of questions that people are asking. And that's often a time when in fact you get the most exciting new, new things coming up. Okay, before we finish, I want to thank you, our team at the research office, and of course events team and IT team and Charlotte who introduced it and especially Alexandra for being our guest and to all of you thank you for coming